Hi folks, this is Jack Smirko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. There's always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is November 1st, 2016. This is episode 1890 of the Survival Podcast. As you can hear from my voice, I am still in recovery from uh, from the workshop. So I am going to actually do an expert counsel show for you guys today. That way I won't have to talk very much and I can save my voice and continue to recover. Anyway, I've got uh, some pretty good stuff for you guys today. I've got six expert counsel questions on deck for you, and they are going to be about the following. We're talking about making up food in advance for a smoother life with Keith Snow, keeping bread fresh with Erica Strauss, fencing for your pastured cattle, uh, Darby Simpson, talking about the good, the bad, and the ugly on something called non-performing notes with John Pugliano today, and expanding earthworks and utilizing terraces with Jeff Lawton, and setting up a first aid kit with considerations for the elderly from Doc Bones. We'll have all that for you in just a bit. Before we do that, let's hear from our two sponsors of the day. Hey, guys, what do you call a gun without ammo? Well, I call it an overpriced club or perhaps a way to get a loan at a pawn shop. So I keep a good supply of ammo around, and I always shop bulkammo.com when I need more. With shipping that's so fast you'll wonder how they do it, all the common calibers and a discount for MSB members on top of it, check out bulkammo.com today and give them a shot at your business. Recently, a new magazine showed up at my house. I had never seen it before. I had never heard it before. It was Self-Reliance Magazine. And I took a look at it and realized it was from the same people, Dave Duffy and his crew, that have been producing Backwoods Home. They sent me an introductory copy because I've been a subscriber to Backwoods Home for 20 years. I opened the pages and I was blown away. Pretty much you take what Backwoods Home has done for two decades or more, up the production value, and take 100% focus on self-sufficiency and self-reliance topics, homesteading, canning, cooking, you name it, that type of thing, all of the politics stripped out, hardcore how-to. That's the new Self-Reliance magazine. You can learn more at self-reliance.com. So with that done, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. Um, the year is 1890 because the episode's 1890. And I have for you guys today the Wounded Knee Massacre. I have Chicago Wins the World's Fair, and I have the Sherman Antitrust Act. Of those, I'd actually most like to read The Wounded Knee Massacre to you, but it's a, it's a rather long one, and with my voice the way it is, I'm going to punt on that one and uh, read to you uh, the Sherman uh, Antitrust Act, because it does have a lot, of, um, a lot of relevance for us still today, and a hard question to ask for some people anyway. Or I should say, hard question to answer. Before we do that, though, we have notable births this year. Anthony Foker, who was he? He designed the Red Barons, Foker Triplane, in World War One. And Foker aircraft are still around. The Foker 100 is a great little commuter aircraft that has about 18-person capacity. Ho Chi Minh, born this year. Dwight David Eisenhower is born this year. In other news, William James publishes The Principles of Psychology. Rubber gloves are used for the first time in surgery, and West Point hosts the very first Army-Navy football game. Navy wins 24-0, but Army will make a comeback next year, 32-16. Anyway, let's take a look at the uh, Sherman Antitrust Act. The law should be named the Sherman Lack of Trust Act, but you can usually trust a businessman to look out for their own best interests. 
Specifically, U.S. Senator John Sherman of Ohio has been worried that Standard Oil is killing competition and circumventing state law. Ohio state law prohibits corporations from owning stock in other corporations, so Standard Oil set up an umbrella organization that holds several corporations in a trust. In other words, the Standard Oil Trust manages multiple corporations, sort of like real estate management service that keeps an eye on your apartments, collects rents, mows the lawns, calls a plumber when needed, but Standard Oil Trust is seen as a legal dodge. They have been lowering prices to the consumer and killing competition. Are they really? Who knows? The Sherman Antitrust Act makes monopolies and conspiracies between corporations illegal. Senator Sherman assures the public that the act applies to old as well as recognized principles of common law. Of course, one wonders why one needs a new law if it's simply a restatement of old laws. In two years, Ohio will break up Standard Oil Trust, and Standard Oil will become a holding company based in New Jersey. Twenty-one years from now, it will finally be broken up into multiple companies, and that will be a long wait. My take by Alex Shrug. This is a tricky subject. If I open a business and offer a product that's better and costless than my competitors, am I bad? Should the government do something? In the 1980s, the Japanese were accused of dumping below-cost computer memory onto the American market. Certainly, the memory chips cost less than what the American companies could produce them for. America was once home to several major electronics firms, but a slump in the market caused American companies to put their efforts into more complex semiconductor chips with larger profit margin. With the memory market became profitable again, Japanese and Korea uh, were well positioned to take advantage, but the American companies needed to retool to become competitive. This is an old story. Large, well-established companies don't want to retool, so they can demand the government, so they demand the government to do something. President Reagan imposed a 100% tariff on Japanese televisions, computers, and other items in retaliation. It was a bold stroke that came too late. So what should have happened? Nothing. No help. My sense is the American companies were expecting the government to protect them from foreign competition. Because of that expectation, they got lazy, killed their own innovation, and locked themselves out of their own market. Passing yet another law won't protect a business from big bad guys. All a law can do is punish them after the fact, long after you are out of business. Yeah, um, it's an interesting thing. I mean, my general answer on this is exactly the same as Alex. You do nothing. But you can see where it happens when you have an entire, an entire industry on the verge of completely being destroyed um, or the largest companies in the world in danger of you know, going bankrupt. Uh, you can see where there would be a, a, a populist movement well, to protect it, to, to, to tariff these evil Japanese for you know, doing a better job than we are. And uh, it's always easy for people like myself to say, well, you just should let the market decide. But uh, in the end, you do get to a point where there's people that are, are actually hurt by this. The, the, the quandary, though, becomes pretty self-evident. It never works anyway. It never works anyway. Reagan imposed massive tariffs on many different imports, uh, specifically against Japan, including the automotive industry. And when you look at the actual impact of it, now that we have hindsight, it's, you know, 2020, it's almost completely and totally insignificant. In the end, it never works. It never works. It never works. But yet we'll keep trying to do it over and over again because the more things change, the more they stay the same. With that, let's go ahead and take our first uh, question today for an expert council member. I have a question for Chef Keith Snow. I'm making up your meals in advance to live a smoother and better quality life. Keith, take it away. Hey, Chef Keith Snow with HarvestEating.com. Dan, I want to address your question about trying to uh, make cooking for the week a little easier by having some meals made ahead of time. 
Now, it's uh, interesting timing to see this question because I am um, busy uh, in, in the middle of creating an online course that's uh, designed to help people do what Jack says, uh, eat what you store and store what you eat. It's called Food Storage Feast. And what it does is show people how to cook with um, commonly stored items. And I'm not talking about you know MREs. I'm talking about rice, beans, oats, wheat, corn, tuna, pasta, dehydrated and freeze-dried, that sort of thing. Now, um, in the research phase of making this course, which has just taken an ungodly amount of time to put together, um, I started cooking with these foods a lot and um, started making these type of foods the center of the plate. Most Americans are used to meat and three, meat and two, where you've got a bunch of meat um, that can take a long time to cook or not, and then a little bit of, you know, veg or starch off to the side. Now, my theory was um, if you ever really needed to cook from your preps, um, having good ways to quickly use up these more inexpensive storable foods would be a good thing. So I'm answering your question from that bent. Now, when I started um, doing this and I basically took my family because we spent a lot of money on food, some so upwards of $1,600 a month on food. And a lot of that is me testing recipes. So we have a lot of food coming in, but I'm the type of guy that likes to go to the store and buy food every other day, if not daily. And I cook all types of Foods, but they're not generally fancy foods. That's a big myth that, um, you know, us chefs, even though I've cooked in some super fancy restaurants, this is not the type of food that we make at home. I mean, if you're doing that kind of stuff all day long, I mean, chefs will go home and, you know, have super simple things. And this is sort of the same thing for my family. While we have nice meals pretty often, um, a lot of times we'll have sort of everyday stuff. So, um, Kind of getting to your question, what can you do ahead of time? Well, um, here's here's an idea. Let's talk about some beef or meat or game. Uh, hopefully, you have access to some great game meat like elk or buffalo, or if not, maybe some local grass-fed beef, or some of you uh, might have access to lamb. Either way, you can cook some of this ahead of time. Let's just say, I don't know how big your family is, but... Let's say you cook two pounds ahead with a little bit of onions and garlic, salt and pepper. Cool it off on a sheet tray and then put it into the refrigerator. And this is key. If you want it to last, you know, for the five days, you need to cook it and you don't need to cook it to death. Cook it, you know, three quarters of the way through. It's starting to brown, get some color and then spread it out on a sheet tray. Leave it on your counter. That's going to cool it off rather quickly. Don't leave it sit in a heavy cast iron pot for 40 minutes because it's not going to cool. Once it's cool, then you can put it in um, the storage container of your choice, tuck it away in the refrigerator. Then later in the week, let's just say you've got beef. Um, you can take mashed potatoes, and they can be instant. You can use frozen vegetables whipped together shepherd's pie. Take that same beef, season it up with chili spices and maybe some a batch of cornbread, you know, really moist cornbread. Um, you can use the cornbread as the base. You put the seasoned beef over the top, um, some enchilada sauce, which takes no time to mix together, some cheese, you bake it. You know, you've got like a tamale pie. That can be put together in no time. What about taking that shredded, or I mean, excuse me, that um, cooked beef, you know, add some tomatoes, a little bit of cream, some herbs, put over cooked spaghetti that you already have in the fridge for sort of a bolognese-type sauce. 
Um, what about taking some of the ground beef, mixing in some tomatoes and seasoning, get some cabbage leaves, boil the cabbage. You can do that ahead of time too. You can make, you know, stuffed cabbage. I think they call them like galumkis or something. It's Polish food, really delicious. Um, that's a few ideas right there. Um, you can take the, the meat, you can make chili with it. Very simply, add some beans, some tomatoes, whatever seasonings you like. You know, in less than 30 minutes, you could have a pot of chili. Now, what about rice? Now, I know you mentioned rice in your answer. Um, in my research, this is a terrific food. Um, I make big batches of what I call confetti rice. It's one of the recipes in the course. Um, I cook it ahead, and then I use this stuff during the week. I mean, doing just what you're asking pretty much, um, rice and beans, um, chicken and rice soup. Rice casserole with some um, chicken, you know, broccoli and cheese, kind of like a casserole. I mean, again, nothing fancy, but meal on the table and super delicious. Um, also, if you've got rice like that, take some of that cooked meat that you had. Maybe you pick up a few bell peppers at the store, mix the rice with the cooked meat, some shredded cheese, season the whole thing up, stuff it into bell peppers, you know, 35, 40 minutes baking. That's a delicious dish. Um, oats. A lot of times I'll take steel cut oats or even rolled oats and I soak them. I put them in water on the counter overnight. Um, and I'll cover them up. You don't want any people getting into it like flies. Um, so soaked oats or fermented oats. And then I cook them the next day and I'll store those. Same thing. I'll cool them off on a sheet tray and then I'll store those in the fridge. And having steel cut, steel cut oatmeal cooked ahead is a great thing for breakfast. You know, cold morning, you take a scoop of that steel cut oats. You can put it in a microwave, a little milk, um, some maple syrup, fresh strawberries, or whatever fruit might be in season. And all of a sudden, you've got um, an awesome oatmeal breakfast that normally would have taken, you know, 25 minutes or so to cook. You've got it done in 30 seconds because you had it cooked ahead of time. Um, I'm, I've even been known to use um, oatmeal like that and make lunch out of it. Now, what about potato flakes? Yeah, I know potato flakes have always gotten a bad rap, even by me. As I've gotten a little older, as I've gotten busier and busier in life with three kids going here and there and all over the place and careers and all that, I've kind of put away my snobbiness about potato flakes, and they have some things in them that uh, I don't recommend eating all the time, you know, the little preservatives, but um, you can make a batch of creamy, delicious mashed potatoes using potato flakes, folks, in seconds, and they actually taste good. I've, I've done tests where I... I took Omi, who's my German mother-in-law, a potato snob, and uh, made mashed potatoes. At least she thought they were from regular potatoes, and she ate them and liked them. Afterwards, I told her they were potato flakes, and she said, well, I, I might have suspected, but she ate every last bit of it. So potato flakes, you can make mashed potatoes. You can put together a super quick gravy with beef broth or chicken broth, a little bit of roux, some uh, fresh or dried herbs and you've got a nice gravy, add a side of vegetables to that, maybe pick up a rotisserie chicken or pork loin at the store, slice it up, good to go in no time at all. What about a quick soup? This is another recipe that's going to be in the course. And this one surprised me because leek and potato soup is one of my favorite soups. It's, you know, it's a French um, original recipe and it, it doesn't take a lot of time to make, but, um, it, it can take close to an hour to make it. I make a version with um, one six-inch piece of leek, 
and I've used freeze-dried leeks and it works well. Um, and I actually used a can of evaporated milk from the pantry and potato flakes, little seasonings. And I got to tell you, I mean, this was a restaurant quality leek and potato soup in under 30 minutes. Um, so those potato flakes can have a lot of value. If you make up a batch of, of um, you know, mashed potatoes using potato flakes, make it a little stiffer than usual. So put in a little less um, liquid, then add um, some fish like codfish or halibut, which can be cooked in minutes. You can steam it or just cook it in a saute pan or just flake it up raw and add it to the potato flakes with some green onions, some seasonings, eggs, and then you can make cakes out of it. You can fry them, serve them with a remoulade sauce, which is a simple sauce to put together, a little bit of mayonnaise, capers, roasted peppers, parsley, horseradish, Worcestershire sauce, lemon juice, you know, dry mustard, hot sauce, simple million varieties of that stuff. So fish and potato cakes rock with a little bit of remoulade. Again, if you've got and I've done this before with um, fish that was cooked ahead of time in the refrigerator, um, potato flakes, you know, five minutes to make them and take a whisk, a bowl, assemble those um, remoulade sauce ingredients, literally three or four minutes, whip that up, fry these potato cakes. And that is a terrific meal. What about pasta? Now, pasta is amazing cooked ahead. Let's just say you cook two pounds of spaghetti ahead, cool it off, add a little bit of um, olive oil in it and you can put it in a zip bag so it doesn't stick together and you know when you cook it don't murder it i mean cook it al dente so it still has a little tooth to it then one night maybe make spaghetti with red sauce how simple is that you already have the spaghetti cooked that's what takes the time so uh, no big deal there what about spaghetti a la matriciana this is a famous roman recipe uh, in the from the abruzzo region of italy it's super simple and, you know, I haven't made it in a while. I need to. The the trick to it is it usually uses something called guanciale, which is pork cheek. It's hard to find. Or pancetta is a little more easy to find or even good bacon. And it's mixed with a little bit of um, tomatoes some pepper flakes. And uh, it is a delicious dish. Amatriciana is awesome. Also, you can take the spaghetti, you know, carbonara. What's hard about that? Bacon, Parmesan cheese. You know, some eggs, herbs, easy. Um, cooked spaghetti, cook up in olive oil, some sliced garlic, um, toast it in the, in the oil, add a bunch of parsley and Parmesan cheese mixes spaghetti. Damn good. Super simple. Beans. What about cooking beans ahead of time? Uh, I mean, you can cook any type of beans, but let's just say you do pinto beans. They'll, they'll last four to five days in the fridge, not much longer than that. And when those things go rancid, folks, it's ugly. So you don't want to let any beans rot in your fridge. Take it from me. Um, you can use that to make quick chili. Remember, you had that uh, meat cooked ahead. You mix the cooked beans with the cooked meat, season it up. You know, it's as easy as that. You can use the beans to make bean nachos. You take, um, you can take, you know, pre-cooked tortilla chips, you know, tortilla chips out of a bag. And layer them with your, with cooked beans and cheese, maybe some of that meat, green onions, um, canned petite diced tomatoes, and put it in the oven, and that's delicious. You could use those beans to make a bean soup. Super, super simple. You can make refried beans, serve that with your ground beef, or maybe a rotisserie chicken, um, or you could take the uh, beans and cheese, make enchiladas, you can make quesadillas. 
So there are loads of things you can do. And I know this is kind of rapid fire uh, in this venue. I can't really get too specific. But making foods ahead of time, using things from your pantry, uh, again, these cheaper sort of uh, storable commodity foods is definitely something that can be done. I did it for uh, a few months. You know what I noticed? My grocery bill dropped like a rock. I mean, it was unbelievable. I was looking at the grocery bill. I mean, it was so much easier, um, you know, when we were cooking with those type of foods. But Dan, I hope some of this will spur some ideas. I mean, if I had more time, I could come to your house in a couple of days. I could have you as an expert at cooking some things ahead. But no matter what, um, I don't like the idea too much of, you know, uh, defrosting things and, you know, cooking too much of it in the microwave. So I like to have some of these items, um, cooked ahead of time and then whipped up into other dishes. But the key is having a good pantry. You have to have a good pantry. You can't, uh, you can't have nothing in the pantry and expect to put together great meals. So I hope that helped you out. And I want to thank everybody for supporting survival podcast and also harvest eating. I hope everybody has a great weekend. Take care, Jack and take care folks. Well, good ideas from Keith all around there. Um, we're going to stick with the food uh, topic for um, just one more segment here. I have a question for uh, Erica Strauss on keeping bread fresh, specifically fresh baked baked bread for more than a day or two. You know, I always remember my grandmother would uh, would say, "Go down to the the grocery store and get a a, a, a loaf of uh, day old bread. It's just as good as the fresh bread." And you get it for a little bit less money. It was really like two day old bread, I think, and it was, but it it didn't last as long. Fresh bread does not. Um, doesn't keep very long. I have some ideas, but I'm interested to hear what Erica has to say. So Erica, take it away. Hello, TSP community. Erica Strauss, author of The Hands-On Home here, calling in to answer Felicity's question on keeping home-baked bread fresher longer. So Felicity writes, I make bread at home all the time, both normal bread in my bread machine and sometimes sourdough or flatbread as well. It's just me and my partner, so we struggle to finish a whole loaf before it goes stale. The leftovers go to the chickens, so the bread isn't wasted, but it would be good if we could get it to last more than two or three days. Homemade bread is fantastic, and we usually eat less because we enjoy it and are not using it as a filler, and it's just as good as bakery fresh bread, but a lot cheaper. So I would encourage everyone to learn to make bread and understand how yeast works. Thank you very much. From Western Australia, Felicity. Well, hello, Felicity from the Western United States. Um, how great to know that TSP reaches such a global audience. That's so cool. Well, look, Felicity, I totally agree with you on fresh home-baked bread. If people can tolerate wheat and tolerate the carb loads, I mean, there's really very little that's more delicious than fresh, still warm, home-baked bread with lots of butter. So our goal when storing bread without preservatives, like a homemade loaf, is basically twofold. We want to reduce moisture loss to the loaf, which causes the bread to sort of go stale. But at the same time, you want to prevent mold growth. And unfortunately, these two goals can sometimes be a little hard to achieve at the same time. The reason for that is that the best way to reduce moisture loss in a loaf is basically to wrap the loaf in thick layers of plastic. But if you're in a humid climate, that plastic can actually lead to a loaf of bread going moldy more quickly. So this is actually a bit uh, trickier of a question than you might think. But the first and I think the most simple solution in your case, Felicity, would simply be to adjust your baking to make smaller loaves of bread. Um, you said you made 
bread machine bread, and that's fine. A good bread machine cookbook should offer recipes for both one and two pound loaves of bread, or um, I guess in Australia that would be kilo and 500 gram half kilo loaves. So you might look at that as an option. If you've been doing like one kilo loaves, see if you can possibly shift it down to make 500 gram loaves. Or if you're um, outside of the bread machine making like a sourdough or a straight dough loaf like your flatbread, you should easily be able to modify the size of the loaves that you're shaping and then putting in the oven. And this doesn't need to be you coming up with a completely different recipe. You can make large batches of dough following recipes you're already comfortable with and then just divide the dough into smaller, more manageable pieces and freeze any dough you don't want to use right away. For example, I make rather enormous quantities of dough sometimes and then just portion the dough into one-pound balls. That's about a half kilo. Um, you might prefer something even smaller, like a 400 or 300-gram portioning. But my main point here is that there is absolutely no reason why, when you're making your own bread, you can't bake a loaf that's exactly the right size for your household to consume in a comfortable time before that loaf goes stale. Now, you might be concerned, sort of justifiably, that this would increase your workload or how many times you'd have to heat up your oven so it's going to cost more. You know, and if that's a concern, you just bake multiple smaller loaves of bread in one go, in one oven heat up, and simply freeze the ones you aren't using. This is super easy because bread freezes extremely well. You just want to make sure you let the bread cool completely and then wrap the loaves for later very well in plastic wrap or freezer paper. Just pop those pop those loaves into your freezer, right? And when you run out of your unfrozen bread, you just thaw a loaf of the frozen stuff. You, you thaw it while it's still wrapped at room temperature. And then if you want the absolute best taste and texture from your pre-frozen bread, you just warm it briefly in an oven or a toaster oven to give it that nearly fresh baked taste. Now, homemade bread that is frozen while it's really fresh and then is thawed and rewarmed is, in my opinion, simply better than homemade bread that is going on to four or five days old. There's just very little you can do to get around this. So that's what I want to suggest most strongly. Use the power that you have in this DIY flexibility to create a mini loaf that is ideal in size for what you and your partner will and can eat within just a few days. Now, that said, I do have a few tips on how to make an unfrozen loaf of bread last a bit longer. And these tips fall into two categories. One, ways to make the bread that lasts longer inherently because of the way the bread is made. And two, ways to store any loaf of bread so that it will last just that little bit longer. So in that first category, moisture breads will last longer than dry breads before going stale. So bread doughs that incorporate ingredients like eggs, especially egg yolks, oil, milk, or honey, these all produce a longer-lasting loaf. So if you make a very eggy or a sweeter loaf, something like challah, this is going to last a lot longer, all things considered, than a simple loaf made from flour, water, salt, yeast, and that's it. So that's um, that's because these ingredients both provide moisture and they draw moisture to them. So that's the first thing to consider. If a sweeter, eggier bread isn't really your thing, on the other side of bread stylings, bread made from a sourdough starter or from what's called a sponge or sometimes a 
a biga. Um, sponge and biga are sort of like sourdough light for those of you who aren't bakers. These loaves will last longer, too, compared to a simple straight dough loaf. The tangy nature of a longer fermented dough has a preservative effect on the loaf, and this has to do with the beautiful acids that are formed um, through fermentation, longer fermentation. And most sourdough or sponge-based breads tend to be a fairly high hydration, wetter dough. So that also plays a role in keeping the bread from drying out for a longer period of time. So to briefly recap, Two types of uh, loaves that will stay fresher longer naturally are those that are sort of rich, that are made with egg yolks, uh, oil, honey, milk, that kind of stuff, or loaves that are made with a longer fermentation dough like a sourdough. And then for our second category of sort of tips, uh, for whatever kind of loaf of bread you have, there are several ways to store fresh bread, some of which will get you a little bit longer good eaten time than others. Um, I recommend personally against storing bread in the refrigerator unless you live in a very hot, very humid environment where bread molds almost immediately. The dry air in a refrigerator tends to suck the moisture right out of bread and the cool temperature tends to crystallize the starch granules so the bread sort of ends up with a pretty poor texture. It's just not a very pleasant thing to eat bread that's been refrigerated. So, okay, we've established that room temperature is best, right? If you live in a fairly dry, non-humid climate or a cool climate, one of the best ways to store bread is just in a large zip-top style bag. Uh, freezer bags, gallon size, even two gallon size, if you can find them, work very well for this because the plastic is quite thick and because they're reusable. Uh, for a very long time, unlike single-use plastic wrap, which, you know, every time you cut a slice of bread, you have to rewrap your bread. That That's a pain in the butt, and no one is actually going to do it. But if you have a dedicated bag that's sort of where your bread goes, you can use it for a year, and you never really need to clean it out because it just has bread in there. And uh, you can get really, really good protection against moisture loss for your loaf. So for that kind of storage, what you would do is once the bread uh, that you've baked cools completely to room temperature, you would place the loaf in the bag and just press out any excess air out of the bag and seal it. And if you use this method, I also recommend that you slice your loaf from the center out, working towards the edges, so that you can take the two ends of the loaf and squish them together in the bag. This is a little bit weird to describe on air uh, verbally, but if you slice from one end of the loaf, no matter what, that end will dry out. It's, it's just inevitable, even in a bag. And then the next day, you'll have to kind of slice off a chunk of that dry bread, and you're going to lose some of your bread. But if you slice the center section, right, to start with, into equal size ends and parts, then you can sort of reassemble the end parts into a loaf that looks like it has an intact crust and kind of acts from a moisture loss standpoint like it has an intact crust. The crust is a major barrier to the bread drying out and staling. So if you sort of put the loaf back together before you store it, you're going to have a better, longer lasting loaf. So that's the best way. Cut your loaf of bread um, right from the get-go so that you can reassemble it and use heavy plastic to protect it. 
But things are a little bit different if you live in a humid and warm area because the fact is you might get mold on your bread within just a few days if the plastic is creating a kind of greenhouse effect around your bread and trapping humidity. So if that's your situation, it's going to be better to wrap your bread in a nice cloth bag, something like cotton or linen. These are very easy to make at home. Uh, if you can use a sewing machine, think of these as sort of like small pillowcases with a drawstring end. And the cloth will protect the bread against some moisture loss and against dust and that kind of stuff, but will still allow enough airflow so that the bread won't mold. Wax paper or butcher's paper is a good mid-weight alternative, which will allow some airflow compared to a heavy plastic bag, but less than a cloth bag. But both wax paper and butcher's paper are very hard to reuse. So you're, again, going back to the point where you have to rewrap your loaf of bread each time. It's a bit of a pain. So I'll leave that up to you, whether the sort of cost benefit makes sense in your situation. The final option for storage is a paper bag, and this is a natural choice for bread with a very crusty exterior that will be eaten within about 12 to 18 hours of baking. Baguettes, for example, are typically sold in an unsealed long paper bag tube because paper doesn't trap moisture. And so that kind of wrapper doesn't risk softening the crisp, almost brittle crust of a really good baguette. So traditionally, this is a bread product that was baked multiple times a day to ensure maximum freshness anyway. And so retaining moisture was more of a drawback to this really fresh bread than losing moisture was a concern. But once you look at longer-term storage, the drawbacks of a paper bag really start to show up. Uh, paper is extremely permeable. The air is just going to go right through it. So even if you roll up the paper bag around your bread, you're not really limiting airflow to the bread, and therefore you're not really retaining moisture in the bread. So I do think paper is a poor choice for longer-term storage of fresh bread. For additional protection beyond a cloth or a paper bag, you can also look at something traditional like a bread box. Uh, for most folks, I actually like the modern alternative to a bread box, which is the microwave. Um, not turned on, just the microwave as a storage unit. A bread box takes up counter space, which a lot of folks don't have, whereas most of us have a microwave, so the space that it takes up is already allocated. And it's a small, tightly sealed box in your kitchen. So really, it's great for a traditional bread box. When you aren't using your microwave to melt butter or heat up coffee or whatever, it really can do great service as a place to store your fresh bread. And of course, once the bread itself is a bit stale, there's so much you can do with it. I mean, it's lovely to be able to throw your leftovers to the birds, don't get me wrong, but you can make that human food product kind of do double duty at your own table before you get to the point where you're feeding it to your birds. And, you know, if you think about it, every culture for whom bread has been a staple traditionally has come up with these leftover recipes that use stale bread. So if you want a little inspiration, you know, Italian cuisine is a great way to look. Mediterranean cuisine in general, Spanish, Italian, um, North African. So from croutons to panzanella, which is a delicious and fairly traditional bread salad, to crostini as a little appetizer, to breadcrumbs, to bread pudding, which you can do sweet, but you can also do savory uh, bread 
bread pudding is a really delicious alternative to kind of a traditional American Thanksgiving stuffing, a savory bread pudding with sage and mushrooms. There are a lot of ways to use up bread that has gone stale, but still keep it, you know, at your table before we get to the point where we toss it into the chicken coop. So I hope this has given you a few tips on how to get longer lasting bread out of your oven and how to store your bread so that you do get more out of it. Um, as always, guys, if you have any questions, just drop a comment in today's show notes and I will do my best to answer. And I guess I'll just say, you know, that's all I've got on bread. Thank you so much. This has been Erica for the Expert Council. Uh, if you want the everyday simple bread recipes I use in my own home, you will find them in my book, The Hands-On Home. Just search for Hands-On Home through Jack's link on Amazon and it'll pop right up and you can read reviews and get previews and all that stuff. So thank you guys so much for your questions. Uh, please keep them coming. Send them into Jack and I will chat with you all in a couple of weeks. You know, I, I I don't eat bread very much, but uh, when you listen to that, you want to eat bread. So anyway, uh, let's get our minds on some other things. Um, I have a question here for Darby Simpson on setting up fencing uh, for pastured cattle between uh, electro braid and high tensile. Darby, take it away. Hello, everyone. This is Darby Simpson calling in to answer another question for the TSP Expert Council. This week, I've got a question from Steve in Minnesota about what I think he should use for fencing in a large area of pasture for his growing cattle herd. Steve's wanting to know my opinion on the differences between using either high tensile fence or electro braid. Um, Here's the details that Steve sent in. Uh, He needs to replace his current two-wire steel T-post fencing system that encloses 25 acres of pasture. And, and basically, uh, currently, you know, this permanent or temporary fence rather is, is used to, uh, run along the property's, uh, perimeter, uh, property lines and it encloses about 55 acres of, of property in total. And, uh, he's looking at replacing about 7,200 linear feet of fence. And he's looking at these two different systems and, and kind of want to know my opinion, um, Steve, I got to tell you, uh, anytime we're talking about permanent exterior fence, I am a huge fan of high tensile for a number of reasons. Um, first of all, I think, you know, it's, it's going to last a whole lot longer. And frankly, it, it could be, uh, cheaper to put up on the front end, depending on how much you're looking at, at spending on the electro braid, uh, fence, which typically electro braid, in my experience, my knowledge is that that's, that's used for horses. Uh, but you know, high tensile fence, uh, particularly if you get, you know, 12 and a half gauge wire that's made in the United States, stuff's pretty inexpensive. A 4,000 foot roll, that stuff's about 90 bucks. Uh, it's, you know, a little over two cents a foot to put up. So I'm a huge fan of, of the permanent high tensile fence. That's what we've used here for all of our exterior fencing. Uh, and all of our exterior fencing is a minimum of four wires. Uh, I know you, you said you've currently got two wires and you, you don't have issues with calves getting out. Um, you know, I kind of look at that from a liability standpoint. Uh, I put up at least four wires to keep my animals in. We've got a lot of fencing that uh, borders roadways, so there's an insurance liability issue, uh, you know, associated with that. As a side note, on our farm insurance policy, we all we also uh, carry uh, some some coverage in case an animal does get out onto the roadway. 
and and causes an accident or or damage. Uh, just a little side note there. I feel like that's really important. Um, but like I said, we've got a minimum of four wire. I will tell you that everything I'm building going forward is going to be eight wire. Now that's mainly because we're looking at at some point adding sheep in the future. Uh, but I think a minimum of four wire putting up at you know twelve, twenty four, thirty six, forty eight inches really is a, is a good investment. This you know the American made steel wire that stuff's going to last thirty plus years. Um, pretty much everything I, I'm building now, you know, by the, by the time it's going to need replaced, frankly, I'm probably going to be too old to care. Another thing I like about high tensile is how quick you can repair it. I mean, it is literally, uh, you know, a 10 to 30 minute job, uh, you know, and it's 30 minutes as if, you know, I need to get a chainsaw out to cut a limb off of it and ratchet some stuff back together. I mean, it is quick, just a couple of hand tools Usually one person can uh, do about 95% of the repairs fast, simple. You get your system back up and going in no time at all. Um, you know, we, we also, um, on our, our perimeter fencing, we put our line posts at about 16-foot intervals. Um, the One of the reasons we do that is because you, you don't want those wires to spread. Animals still can spread those wires and get out. You can go on longer intervals if you'd like. I wouldn't personally suggest going much past 20 feet on your perimeter fence. On your interior fence, however, for, for subdividing larger areas of grazing, you can put your line posts on 40 to 50 foot intervals. And we only use two wires for our internal fence. We've got like one at 12 inches uh, or maybe 18, and then the top one's at 30 inches. We really don't have any issues with animals, um, you know, jumping over that. I mean, occasionally it happens, but it's like, you know, once or twice a year maybe. Uh, and then for our daily rotations, that's where the, you know, the, the braided temporary portable fencing, you know, that's, that's where that comes in. We're using step in posts and we're using O'Brien reels and, uh, you know, eight or nine conductor stainless steel wires that we, uh, you know, we use to move our animals every day. So, you know, that's, that's what I would tell you to do. Um, I, I'm just, I, I don't know. I don't have any experience with the electric braid. I, I've never installed it. I know some people that have it. I know it's expensive. Uh, to me, it looks like a maintenance headache. I mean, oftentimes I see it, it's, it's sagging. Um, you know, it does start to fray. Sunlight's going to break down that, that braided material over time. You're going to have to replace it a lot sooner. And, it, and it's not inexpensive stuff. Uh, I, I think compared to the, you know, to the steel wire that, you know, look, you, you got to do a cost estimate. You got to throw all this into an Excel spreadsheet and figure it out. But I really think that, you know, over the long run, the, the high tensile system, I think you're going to be happier with it. And I think it's going to be cheaper. Um, and, you know, I'm all about efficiency in terms of like, I want to build stuff once and then not have to mess with it ever again beyond some basic maintenance and, Electro braid, you know, using that as a uh, exterior fence, I think is just going to be a maintenance headache. And frankly, I just don't have time for that. I'm busy enough the way it is without having to, uh, you know, run around and and uh, fix fence all the time. So, you know, the the, the permanent high tensile stuff, man, you know, it, it can it can hold up a pretty good sized tree and and not break. Um, and then if you you put a you know a, a spring on your top wire. Uh, in case a, a heavier tree does fall on it, that spring's going to fail, and it's just so fast to put back together. 
really quick. I really like it, and it makes uh, you know putting your reels on and doing your uh, your daily rotations so super easy. I spend maybe 20 minutes, 25 minutes a day with the cows in terms of like my actual labor. That's just all the more it takes, you know. Uh, it's, it's just so quick once you've got all your exterior and internal permanent fence in place to go out, set up your reels and posts and, and rotate the cows every day, really fast, really efficient. And in the end, that's, that's what it's all about. It's trying to be fast and efficient with our labor. So Steve, those are my thoughts, man. I hope you find this helpful. Uh, if you've got some more questions, feel free to shoot me an email. I'll be happy to try and answer those for you. Uh, if any of you would like to learn more about me, you can do so by going out to my website at DarbySimpson.com. There's a lot of free blog articles out there that you can read on all things related to uh, raising pasture-based meats, uh, specifically beef, pork, and poultry. Uh, also, uh, if you're really into this stuff, you can check out the podcast that I'm doing weekly with Diego Footer of Permaculture Voices called Grass-Fed Life. We've got about 30 episodes out there right now, so there's well over 30 hours of listening where we get into all this kind of stuff in great, great detail. Everything from how-to to marketing, uh, business planning, you name it. We, we've covered just about everything. So anyway, uh, thanks everyone for sending these questions in. Keep them coming. I'm always happy to answer them and uh, turn them into the show. As always, have a great weekend and take care. Good stuff from Darby. Let's yet again change up the subject matter a little bit. I have a question for John Pugliano on something called a non-performing note. And you might want to know why somebody would buy something that's, well, non-performing. Uh, with that, John, take it away and explain it. Hello, TSP listeners. Today we have a question from Jim, and Jim is asking about investing in non-performing notes. He says it's something that he had never heard of before, and he wants to know if I think it's a good investment option. Well, before I answer that, let's also delve into Jim's question a little bit here. And he gives us some background. This is how he starts it out. He says, I was approached by an investment counselor about investing in non-performing notes. And then he goes on to talk about how this investment counselor is representing a company. I won't say the company's name. Apparently, what they want him to do is to uh, for Jim to invest $100,000 for a term of 18 months. This particular company puts that money to work, and they supposedly had a return last year of 24%, and they paid out anywhere from 115 to 15%. So Jim is looking at this saying, hey, if I can invest $100,000, they told Jim that there's no obligation, that he can withdraw at any time. He just won't make any money on the interest payment. I suspect that if you read the fine print, there's also some types of uh, early withdrawal pen penalties or something like that. But but even if there isn't, let's just take Jim's question at face value and start off with how Jim is approaching this whole question. And, and I'm, I'm really restraining myself. I'm trying not to do a Stephen Harris rant. And it isn't that I don't like Stephen Harris rants. I, I In fact, I love Stephen Harris rants. I just don't have the same talent to pull them off that he does. But if I could do a Stephen Harris rant, I would be doing one right now. And I would be saying, Jim... What are you talking about? Look at the question you asked me. You said, I was approached by an investment counselor about investing in non-performing notes. Let's start right there, Jim. You weren't approached by an investment counselor. You know, when I was a kid, I was in the Boy Scouts. I went to summer camp. I had a camp counselor there. I've met people that are addicted to you know drugs and alcohol, and they go to addiction counselors. 
You know what you don't go to? You don't go to an investment counselor, Jim. That's a salesman. Investment counselor, that's, that's code word for salesman. And if he calls himself an investment counselor, he's most likely worse than a salesman. He potentially could be trying to mislead you, right? That would make him like a liar. I think my friend Jack has a term that he calls those people called financial liars. I don't know if this particular person that you're dealing with is that way. I'm just telling you that you should be very cautious in calling someone like this a counselor. They're not offering you counsel. They're trying to hustle you a product. And you, you weren't approached by them. You were probably cold called, right? It was just some kind of boiler operation. They got your number. They called you up and they started telling you about these wonderful things that are now made available because the Dodd-Frank bill is allowing small investors to participate in properties that are being spun off by Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and just what a great opportunity it is for you. Jim, the other thing you have to consider is these are non-performing notes. That most likely means that these are homeowners that are not only behind on their payments, the mortgage companies that hold these loans have given up on these borrowers to ever pay back. That's why it's called non-performing. In some cases, these borrowers maybe haven't paid their mortgage for, for several years. So that means that the debt has to be renegotiated. There might be foreclosures involved. There's going to be legal fees. There's a great deal of risk involved with this, and that's why that company that is trying to get you to invest with them is potentially making returns as high as, as 24% because it's a very risky and potentially expensive proposition to foreclose on a home, particularly when someone's still in it. And Jim, in this low interest rate environment that we're in, definitely 11 15% interest That is a phenomenal opportunity. It's an amazing return, and it makes me question how legitimate it is. I have no way of knowing if this is a legitimate offer, but think about how much they're talking about. Right now, 10-year treasuries are only paying about 1.7% interest. You're talking about a minimum of at least 11.5%. I'm looking at a Vanguard high-yield bond fund, and I'm just using this for comparative purposes It's paying about 5.3%. That's its annual dividend, not the capital appreciation. But the yield of the annual dividend is about 5.3%. So that's still half of what you're talking about. And this is what is regarded as a high-yield corporate bond. Okay, High yield is a euphemism for junk bond. So junk bonds, which are bonds that have too much risk to be categorized as investment grade, they're paying about 5% right now. And your investment opportunity is still talking about like twice as much as that. I'm just trying to explain to you, Jim, the level of risk that that investment must be spinning off. Otherwise, why would they be offering such a high rate of return? Now, again, it doesn't mean that it's a scam or that it's crooked. It just means that it must be highly risky. Otherwise, they could afford to offer that in the marketplace for a much lower return. Jim, I don't know you personally, and so I can't offer you specific advice, but you mentioned a $100,000 investment. If you came to me and told me that you had a $2 million portfolio and you were considering taking $100,000 of that, which would be about 5% of your portfolio, and investing it with this company so that you could get some exposure to these non-performing real estate loans, 
Well, I would probably still think that's not a good idea, but since it's only 5% of your portfolio and I'm assuming the rest of the portfolio would be well diversified, I'd say, hey, sure, roll the dice, go take the chance. In fact, to further protect yourself rather than putting all 100,000 with this one company, why don't you split it up with four different companies? Put $25,000 into each company and see how well they do with these non-performing loans. That's the kind of advice I'd probably give you if you had a $2 million portfolio. Jim, I don't know what your portfolio is. I'm assuming that very likely this $100,000 is all you have. And if that's the case, I don't care how good of an opportunity this is. Just from the standpoint of diversification, I would never put a large percent of my portfolio into any one type investment. I wouldn't do it in non-performing loans, nor would I do it in you know one particular stock. Let's say I liked energy stocks. Well, I wouldn't put 100% of my portfolio in ExxonMobil, no matter how good of a company I thought they were, because it would be too much risk. I would only put maybe 5 or 10% of my portfolio in ExxonMobil. And I would take the other 95 or 90% of my portfolio and either invested in other exchange traded funds that are diversified outside of the oil energy industry, or I'd invested in individual stocks that had nothing to do with ExxonMobil. You know, maybe I'd put 5% in Cisco and 5% in Starbucks and 5% in Johnson and Johnson. I'd spread it around. I would never invest all or a significant amount of my portfolio in one small sector of the economy. It's too risky. I'm sure you've worked very, very hard to save up that $100,000. And if anything happened to it, I'm sure it's not going to be easily replaced. But as far as me and my money, I'd stay far away from something like this. Well, there you have it. That's the best I can do at a Stephen Harris rant. If you'd like to hear more about my stock market commentary or my general thoughts on wealth building principles, then please check out the Wealthsteading podcast. For the expert counsel, this is John Pugliano of Investable Wealth. I, I'd have something to add to that if I uh, if I had the, the pipes for it today, but I don't, so I'm gonna I'm just gonna let John's words speak for themselves. Anyway, next question is an interesting one. I have a question on implementation of terraces into earthworks based systems, and this is unique because the question is from one expert council to another expert council member. This question is from Nick Ferguson, and it's for Jeff Lawton. Jeff, take it away. By the way, Jeff's audio is a little rough too today because he's. Uh, I believe he's like in an airport in Jordan answering these questions or something like that. Anyway, Jeff, take it away. Next question here. And it's uh, Nick Ferguson. And uh, he's looking for resources on um, earthworks. And he's going to be doing, um, he wants to know more about terraces. And, um, I don't think terraces are covered enough, um, and that means um, we need to cover them more. So I've got a lot more information on terraces coming up in my next online course, because uh, there are many situations where you just got to get into terraces, because um, you can put terraces in in quite steep slopes, but you cut off about 30 degrees. Somewhere between 18 and 30 is where they where they fit. So they fit where swales finish, really. Uh, they're better at 18 than they're at 30, or easier to put in. And um, there are a few basic rules for terraces. Now, he's actually asked for a resource, and I couldn't think of a, a basic, better research, resource than page 
236 and 237 in the Permaculture Designers Manual. Bill's got a whole section there on terraces. So when we're talking about terraces, we're really talking about one terrace. We're talking about a series of terraces. So they need to be very accurately and carefully designed and implemented and, and can become very stable terraces of earth. They're earth, they're made of earth, uh, providing a total growing surface. Now normally you start on the bottom terrace and you excavate the first terrace and put the soil to one side and that soil goes back to our top terrace to finish. The reason for that is the bottom terrace has surplus soil. Um, so you dig your soil, you dig your soil out, shape your terrace and then pull the top soil down off the terrace above. In doing so, you shape the back cut and the next terrace and then pull your topsoil down from the terrace above. And you keep doing that. And the, te- and the soil that you excavate from the bottom terrace, unfortunately, I'm going to tell you, you're going to take that all the way to the top terrace because you don't have any extra topsoil at the top one. But that's how they're done. So you, you get good access to crop um, and, it, and it's easy to irrigate and it's very efficient soil loss is a minimal really and, and nutrient silts are accumulated with leaf fall from upslope so that slope the maximum slope between terraces and this is the back cut and this is the batter unless you can rock wall it you want that back cut to be something like three to one as a maximum slope even more if you can three to you know one to three or we say three to one or even four to one. And the maximum height between terraces wants to be about six and a half feet, two meters, six and a half feet. So you can imagine how much you've got to lay it back in some slopes. Um, The terrace back cuts, the buns, the walls should all, all be planted to perennial plants and trees that can function as forage and mulch producers. That makes it all stable. and means the whole area is usable. Um, and trees on the buns between, above and below a terrace series should form 40 to 60% of the total landscape. So 40 to 60% of the landscape is actually trees above, below and between and on between the terraces and on the buns of the terrace so um, and then you need to install water inlets and outlets that need to be set up to be very safe and controllable and then away you go you've got it uh, that's the basics on, on, on terraces um, and um, there's plenty of them out there and there's quite a lot of out there in traditional systems not being maintained. They do need to be maintained. Um, particularly, they need the stability of um, uh, tree plantings um, above, below, and in amongst them, or perennial plants and trees. Um, it's true to say a, a, a wet terrace series um, cannot actually be sustainable unless an equivalent area of the terrace series 30% of the equivalent area of the terrace series uphill is in forest and reasonably good forest so the terrace series 
A 30% of the equivalent area of the terrace series uphill in slope gives you enough trickle-down nutrient for a wet terrace series to be more or less permanently sustainable. So there you go. Good coming at you from the hot Middle East. Um, we've got plenty of interesting things here and lots of big commercial interest in consultancy. More than I can keep up with, so I'm keeping my team busy. Talk to you soon. Cheers, Jeff. All right, that one's a little high level, but you got one expert asking another expert a question. You're going to get a high level answer. Final question today is for uh, Doc Bones, and it's on dealing with having first aid kits prepared when you're when you're going to have to take care of older people. And there's certainly some things uh, in this. When I first started reading this question, even before I got the actual problem, it was the first thing I thought of how how as people age, their skin gets really brittle, and how easily it can break or tear or rip. Just being one example of, of elder care that's different than everyday care for the everyday person. So with that, hey, Doc Bones, man, take it away. Hi, Joe Alden, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival medicine website doomandbloom.net. Now with over 850 articles, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness. I'm also the co-author, along with my lovely wife, Nurse Amy, of the brand new 700-page third edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook, the essential guide for when medical help is not on the way. And also the Zika Virus Handbook, both topics you might want to know a little bit about. This week's question for the expert counsel comes from Kay from Maryland, who writes, What items would you recommend putting in home medical kits that are especially helpful for elderly loved ones. This question comes to you from our most recent elder adventure, oh, those elder adventures, wound care. Caring for a significant skin tear that resulted from a fall, our loved one's medical team introduced us to a product called Xeroform. Oh, yeah, we have that in a lot of our kits. This is a wound dressing that is infused with petrolatum and an antibiotic. We were taught to use it as part of a wound dressing system that uses xerophone, gauze pads, bandage wrap, and no adhesive as well. That's good. Uh, people with advanced age, well, they have sort of thin, crepey skin. Adhesives such as those found on Band-Aids were off the table because they were too rough on delicate elderly skin, and this is something we had not thought about until now. Our loved one's healing up marvelously, and naturally we bought a case of Xeroform gauze to keeping our own kits, and to share with family members for theirs. This learning experience has us wondering, what other items would you recommend putting in home medical kits that are especially helpful for elderly loved ones? Thank you and best wishes, Kay in Maryland. Well, Kay, medical gauze dressings can be infused, indeed, like zero-form gauze, with a variety of substances to treat wounds. Plain dry gauze, remember, can easily stick to wounds, causing more trauma and pain to the patient when dressings are changed. Gauze saturated with a moist or wet ointment is normally used to maintain a healthy and hydrated wound bed so that wounds can heal effectively and dressings can be changed without causing unnecessary discomfort. Now, one of the substances medical gauze can be saturated with is, as you mentioned, petrolatum or petroleum jelly, which can be blended with other substances, maybe bacitracin, things like that, to form ointments. It's important that zero-form gauze dressings are trimmed to fit the wound exactly, because maceration of healthy skin surrounding the wound can actually occur, not just in older folks, but in young folks, too. 
In terms of wound care, maceration refers to softening and breakdown of healthy skin after it's been exposed to moisture for too long a period of time. Think trench foot and some of those things. Now, this can make the treatment of wound more difficult because macerated skin is prone to damage or infection. Now, Xeriform dressings are designed for lightly draining wounds, wounds that are leaking a small amount of plasma and blood cells, such as minor burns, bed sores, skin, surgical incisions, and skin biopsy sites. They're not designed for wounds that are heavily draining stuff. So, in other words, blood, things like that. Other dressings, such as alginates, A-L-G-I-N-A-T-E-S, look it up, have been specially designed for those kinds of wounds. Now, it's also possible to have or develop sensitivity to some of the stuff that's in Xeriform gauze. You would think that's not possible, but it is. In which case, this gauze would not be the correct wound dressing. Everybody's a little different, and you'd be surprised what seemingly innocent items that people may be allergic to. Keep an eye on their wounds on a daily basis if you're going to be the medic. Uh, other things that are very important to have actually aren't anything specific just for old people, but are things that are helpful for old people. Scissors, for example, a good thing to have in any first aid kit. A uh, pair of shears is especially necessary in a kit built for the elderly. They've got brittle bones, delicate skin. The only way to remove clothing over an injury might be to cut it off and not try to have them remove it themselves, especially if they have an injured limb, for example. Paper tape would be a good mild addition to make butterfly closures out of. Consider the brand name Steri Strips, which is paper tape impregnated with a little bit of cloth, and it is very, very solid. Uh, self-adherent bandages like Coban, that's another acceptable option for seniors. This Coban sticks to itself and forms a pretty secure dressing. Non-stick gauze like Tufa pads, these are good for burns on thin skin. For larger laceration and cuts, get those roller gauzes, those rolls of gauze so that you can go around and around and around and around and then tape to a, to an earlier fold of gauze and that way you won't have to tape the actual skin of the elderly. Medicines that are especially useful for the elderly would be ibuprofen. Many of these people have arthritis and something that is a non-inflammatory NSAID, N-S-A-I-D, type of medication would be a good idea. Antibiotic ointments, as these people are prone to infections. And stool softeners, as these people oftentimes get constipated very easily. These are some common things that you should have in quantity if you're going to be dealing with a number of elderly folks. And don't forget the muscle rub. The elderly will need plenty of that. Believe it or not, most of the other stuff that you already have in your medical kit probably would be very useful for the elderly, maybe more for the elderly than for the young people that you might have originally packed it for. So how about that? Okay, thank you for your question, and thanks everybody for listening. This has been Joe Alton, MD, of doomandbloom.net and store.doomandbloom.net. Don't forget, Nurse Amy has an entire line of medical kits for your survival and preparedness needs. Thanks so much. Great stuff from Joe and all the uh, the other expert council members today. Um, with uh, with just a, a self preservation instinct here, and to make sure I'm doing the best thing for you guys as well, and making sure the show can indeed continue to go on for the rest of this week. I'm going to call it really short this week and uh, not have much of the closing segment. I will tell you that I do have a really great closing song for you. Uh, we played a lot of uh, a lot of old country. Um, 
at the uh, workshop, and a lot of Willie, especially the first night. So we had a lot of Willie and Johnny Cash on the playlist on the new sound system. And uh, I was looking for a Willie Nelson song to play for you guys today, and uh, I thought this would be a good one. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Maybe I didn't love you Quite as often as I could have Maybe I didn't treat you Quite as good as I should have If I made you feel second best Girl, I'm sorry I was blind But you were always on my mind You were always on my mind Maybe I Those lonely, lonely times I guess I never told you I'm so happy that you're mine Little things I should have said and done I just never took the time But you were always on my mind You were always on my mind Tell me Tell me that your sweet love hasn't died Give me one more chance to keep you satisfied I'll keep you satisfied You were always on my mind.